This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're starting the story of Lancelot, and you'll see that you should never trust anyone ever, as well as which character from Arthurian legend will eventually show up on the show to catch a predator. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a firm yet surprisingly bouncy bear with an epic neck beard. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 41A, The Stolen Child. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. We're once again in Britain, in the early Middle Ages. It's around 600 AD, so the Western Roman Empire collapsed around 100 years ago, and we're still 100 years or so from the Vikings, setting out from the north. You don't need to have heard the previous King Arthur episodes to start this one, but know that Arthur is the king of the Britons, with an O, the pre-Anglo-Saxon and Celtic people in Great Britain. Arthur was the king in Britain, and his magical advisor and shapeshifter aficionado Merlin helped him. Arthur rules from Camelot, and he's just established the Round Table, an order of the best knights in the known world. It was a beautiful day to lose everything. King Ban and Queen Elaine didn't yet know that they were going to lose everything, though. So for them, it was just a beautiful day. King Ban, as you may remember, was a king in Brittany, the small area just across the channel in modern-day France. He and his brother, Bors, helped the teenage King Arthur out of a bit of a tight spot when Arthur's barons rose up against him immediately after he took power, posing an existential threat to his rule. Ban and Bors turned the tide of battle, and accepted Arthur as their king, and that was what led to Ban fleeing for his life. Another king in Brittany took issue with Ban and Bors allying with Arthur and the kings of Britain. His name was Claudius, and he pushed back and made war against Ban. Arthur was in Britain fighting the Saxons, but Ban needed aid. He left his castle and kingdom in the hands of the second-in-command, and he left to plead for help from Arthur. He, the queen, their infant son named Galahad, and his servant left at dawn. They slipped out of the siege of the city through the caves to the west and rode three leagues before the sun rose. They stopped by a wide lake to rest a bit. They didn't know that as soon as they had left, King Ban's second-in-command had taken a bribe and surrendered the city. He told the guards to have some drinks, maybe sleep in, and don't worry about the gate being unlocked. I'll take care of that. Just go to bed. King Ban left Elaine and the squire at the bottom of the hill. He wanted one last look at the castle and kingdom that he loved so much. It had been the home of his ancestors, stretching back into the mists of prehistory. He was an old man, and if Arthur didn't help him, he would have to stay a king in exile in Britain. He looked at his castle, breathed deeply, and he was about to turn around when he saw the smoke. At first, he thought it was just a trick of the light and the rising sun, but soon he saw that it was thick and black. His castle and home was burning. King Claudius, his rival, had obviously learned that he fled. Now his home was falling. He knew that he could never go back. He now had lost his family's kingdom, his home, and almost everyone important to him. He started sobbing, but they had to run. They had to leave immediately and go to Arthur's kingdom. Then his arms started going numb. 
The pain in his chest was intense. He felt like something was crushing it. He felt like his chest was coming apart. He tore at his clothes and tried to yell for his wife. But soon the darkness began flooding in from the edges of his vision. He dropped from his horse. The pain of the fall snapped him back to consciousness. King Ban felt a cracking in his chest and back. He coughed up blood, staring up at the sky and the homeland that was no longer his. He thanked God for making him a pauper right before he died, so that he could be more like Jesus. He tore three blades of grass as a makeshift communion, as was a custom of a believer dying without a priest present, and he placed them on his tongue. He heard his wife shrieking and sobbing as she clambered up the hill to help him. He knew that he was dying, though. He knew that he would never see her again. Elaine screamed when she saw her husband drop from his horse and land on his neck. She was holding her young son, Galahad, and handed him in his little cradle to the squire. Elaine struggled up the hill, tripping twice on her dress, until she saw her husband laying next to his horse. His eyes were closed, and though his face was half covered in blood, he looked peaceful. She tried to wake him, but she couldn't. She knew that he was dead. She wailed and mourned for him, holding the man she loved. She kissed his forehead. She never got to say goodbye. With her tears and hair, she wiped away the blood from his face. When she heard the squire approach, he, too, started sobbing. He loved his king like a father. That's when Elaine, through her tears, noticed something. Where's Galahad? She asked the squire. The young man said that he set the baby down in his little portable cradle by the horses. Elaine gasped. By the horses? She didn't think this day could get any more tragic. But images flashed in her mind of her baby's cradle accidentally being trampled by the loose horses. When she looked down the hill, what she saw was even worse. Galahad's cradle was in one piece, but baby Galahad wasn't in it. Chills and terror shot through Elaine as she saw a strange woman standing by the edge of the lake, holding her son. The woman was in white and otherworldly, and her eyes locked on Elaine's. Even from that distance, the woman to Elaine seemed wild and evil. Elaine saw a sly smirk on the face of the lady by the lake. As the stranger kissed the baby Galahad on his eyes and forehead, turned and started walking into the lake. The squire was the first to realize that the stranger and the baby weren't coming back. He heard Elaine scream as she ran down the hill toward the lake. The stranger with Galahad paid them no notice as she calmly walked into the lake. As soon as her head was below the water, neither the squire nor Elaine could see them. It was like they disappeared. Like I said, the squire knew that the stranger and the baby weren't coming back. It was some sort of sorcery. Elaine didn't know that, though. The squire threw down his sword and tackled his queen before she drowned herself going after her son. Elaine had been weakened by the loss of her husband but she was shattered by the kidnapping of her son. She fought against the squire, who kept her from going into the lake, after the woman, or creature, or whatever it was that took her baby. If she could have thought anything, she would have at least been possibly grateful that her baby was maybe alive. No one just kidnaps children to drown themselves in the child. The woman looked otherworldly. Maybe she had known magic. Maybe the baby was alive somewhere. The squire cared for his queen as they stayed there throughout the day 
and through the night. She was in no position to travel, and they didn't want to just leave the king's body unburied out here. And the queen was secretly hoping that the mysterious stranger would return her son, but the stranger didn't come back. The next afternoon, an abbess came by from a nearby convent. She was traveling with the other nuns, and they recognized the grief-wracked queen. They helped prepare the body of the king, and they expressed their condolences for the capital. The queen was too numb from her personal losses to care much for the capital that had fallen, and that they were now completely dispossessed. She had lost everything when she watched the witch enter the water with her son. Faced with no other options, a queen decided to prepare to see her husband and son again. She went with the abbess and the nuns. A few days later, her hair was shorn, and she took the vows of a nun. She lived out the rest of her days, praying for her husband and for her little Galahad, who had been taken from her, and who was somewhere out there being raised by his kidnapper. We'll learn all about what happened to little Galahad and the enigmatic woman who took him right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths, a new podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably love podcasts and maybe like myths and legends. There's a new podcast that just started this week called Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths, and it features the lives of people who became legends. The podcast takes a closer look at prominent figures who changed history and died tragically, because sometimes the story isn't what you thought. Unlike Lancelot and Fox Demons, these people actually existed. And the podcast not only tells the story of how they lived and died in a really well-produced fashion with screenwriters, voice actors, and a whole production team, but they provide little-known facts and post-mortem analysis, which, pun intended, I guess. Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths comes out Wednesdays, like a certain other podcast, and they have the lives and deaths of Rasputin, Harry Houdini, Kurt Cobain, and Amelia Earhart up right now. And you can visit iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory and search for Remarkable Lives tragic deaths. Again, that's Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Or visit parcast.com slash lives. Start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash lives to listen now. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Reading is good for you, but you know what's very much not good for you? Reading while driving. Or how about trying to do an entire workout one-handed with a book in the other hand? Either that bar is coming down on you hard, or just one side of your body is going to get super buff, and you'll be a walking before and after picture. Anyway, you can hear books and not do dangerous things with Audible.com. Audible.com has audiobooks from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and magazine and newspaper publishers. Their app is free, and it works on nearly every smartphone and tablet, and over 500 MP3 players. And with Audible, you own the books so you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your smartphone. And if you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title, anytime, no questions asked. I'm currently working through a full cast recording of Neil Gaiman's American Gods. I'm rereading it because it's going to be a series on stars early next year, and the full cast is amazing and really well done. Anyway, just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash myths today to start your free trial. Again, you can show your support for Myths and Legends and get a free 30-day trial membership at audible.com slash myths. All right, now back to the show.
Just a few years earlier, a young nobleman met a girl. It was in the time just after Arthur had taken the sword from the stone and taken a seat on the throne, but before the rebellion that threatened the whole land, a young woman named Vivian was sitting by a fountain, whiling her time away. She was the daughter of a Vavasaur of high birth, and she had recently turned 12. She liked to walk to the spring in the cool of the morning and enjoy nature. There, she met a young nobleman. He was charming and polite, and he said that he was an apprentice who had lost his master. He was seeking another. She asked what sort of work he did. He paused for a moment, looked around, and said, Magic. She was surprised and intrigued, and he kept going. His former master had been so skilled that he had taught the young man enough to raise a castle from the ground, right here, fill it with people, and put on an awesome party. He could make rivers spring from nowhere. He could walk on water. She was thrilled now. If all of this was true, she would love to learn it. He took her hand, and she gasped. She, 12, and he, 17. They were basically marrying age. He said that he would be happy to give her a demonstration, and that he would ask for nothing else other than an oath that her love would be his one day. Vivian didn't really hesitate. Her love seemed to be a fairly low price. He smiled and waved his hands. For them, the ground rumbled violently, and in moments, a fully formed castle shot up out of the trees in front of them. Water began flowing to their right, and soon a river formed, rushing through the trees. Many more minutes passed, and knights armored in gold and beautiful maidens began coming out of the castle. Minstrels, cooks, and people of all types began pouring out from the walls. And when Vivian blinked, a festival formed around them. She hugged the young man in excitement. She couldn't believe what she was seeing. That morning and afternoon, they sat in a beautiful orchard that had formed around them, hearing stories of adventure, dragons from faraway lands, and meeting wondrous people. As the sun began to set in the night, the people in the castle began fading away. The magical young nobleman kept the orchard there for a long while because Vivian loved it so much. What do you think of all this? The young nobleman asked. The girl said that he had done enough to make her his forever. He was amazing. Then she asked if he could teach her these amazing things. He smiled. She hadn't given him a pledge yet. He could teach her all he knew but she must swear that her love will be his and her along with it. She must do whatever he asked, whenever he wished. Giving about as much thought to such a weighty oath as any 12-year-old about to learn magic would, she immediately swore the oath. Then she heard a twig snap and suddenly a light shined on them, or her. As soon as the light from the lantern hit them, he was gone. It was their father's men. They had come looking for her since she had been out all day. She looked around and said aloud that she would be back by the fountain the next day. The boy stood at the edge of the clearing, out of view of Vivian and her father's men. When he was certain he was alone, he relaxed and changed from the handsome 17-year-old boy to the middle-aged wizard that he was. Yep, it was Merlin. Merlin, who's either a good guy who finds himself in bad situations or a morally ambiguous guy who creates the bad situations, was using his magic tricks to pick up a 12-year-old he met in the woods. 
and that might be the single sleaziest line I've uttered on this podcast so far. Figuring out a timeline for these stories, especially when you're using as many medieval sources as I am, gets pretty difficult. But I can't imagine Merlin is younger than 40 at this point. Remember that he was like 7 to 10 years old during the rule of Vortigern, three kings ago. And even though him demanding the love of a 12-year-old is really, really gross from a modern perspective, girls were generally married off that early in the Middle Ages. The boys could get married as early as 17 years old, the age Merlin had pretended he was. In their world, Merlin trying to pick up a 12-year-old maybe wouldn't be that weird, even with a middle-aged Merlin, but I'm not telling the story in the Middle Ages, and I find it super weird and gross that Merlin is trying to seduce and trap a 12-year-old into marriage with magic tricks. The next day, Vivian found the attractive young man by the fountain, and he began teaching her. Over time, Merlin, in the guise of a young nobleman, became more and more infatuated with the young girl. The girl, after she got past the initial thrill that she was learning magic, found that she was actually falling in love with this nobleman. Not only was he dreamy, but he was wise, way, way beyond his years. He could hold intelligent conversations and seemed like he genuinely cared for her. Being able to magically build castles out of thin air didn't really hurt either. Months passed like this, with her coming to the fountain every day to learn and him coming to teach. At night, she would return to her home and tell no one of this wondrous boy and the future that she dreamed of with him. Vivian grew a magical ability and one day, as she was learning a charm, she saw a flash of something. It was in the corner of her eye, but in the place of the boy, she saw a wrinkled, much less attractive middle-aged man. She looked at the young nobleman with a start, but saw that it was, again, the good-looking boy that she had grown to love. She shook it off and put it out of her head. It had to have just been a mistake, except it wasn't, and it kept happening. As Vivian's magical ability grew, she began to see the flashes of the real man who had been posing as the boy she loved, and it horrified her. Soon, she could only see the middle-aged wizard. When she asked around about a very specific middle-aged wizard matching that description, she was further horrified to learn that this wizard wasn't just some creepy vagabond, but arguably the most powerful person in Britain. He had been the advisor to the past four kings, three of whom had died young. Now he put this young puppet, some kid named Arthur, on the throne. Merlin was a dangerous man, and she was panicked because he had set his sights on her. She continued learning under him, now fully terrified. She watched the aged wizard study her. Looks she would have interpreted as loving in the eyes of the boy became threatening, coming from a man four times her age. Then she was granted a reprieve. Near the end of her training, the young nobleman said that he must go and come back in a few months. Then she would be able to fulfill her oath that she and her love would be his forever. She agreed, feigning as much joy and excitement as she could. Merlin left that day to relieve Arthur from the siege of Carleon in Wales. Vivian was awake that night. 
she hadn't expected him to leave. She had been granted an opportunity. She scooped up all of her notes from their sessions, put on some traveling clothes, and raided the stores for food. She didn't know how she would survive on her own, and her heart broke to leave her family, but she had to go. One of the most powerful people in the world was coming for her, and she imagined that he wouldn't stop until he had her. To protect herself and her family, she must leave. She padded out of the house and ran across the fields, the moonlight guiding her way. She kept studying and living off the land until she found her way across the channel, out of Britain, out of Merlin's power. Now, I have to say before moving forward that this isn't the official story of the Lady of the Lake that had the interaction with Merlin. That's because there is no one story of the Lady of the Lake. There are over four of them and they contradict each other and massively contradict the main story. And I'll go over that when it happens, you'll see. I merged two of them together, but for the longer explanation on this, check out the discussion post at mythpodcast.com. Though, yes, one of them did involve Merlin tricking a 12-year-old. And sadly, that was far from the worst one. Anyway, now we're back on firm footing in one version, in the French Vulgate. She traveled to Brittany. Next to nothing is said about what she did there, or why she did it, but she found a community living under a lake and she stayed with them for a couple of years. Until Vivian heard some commotion by the edge of the lake one morning. It sounded like a woman was screaming. And this wasn't just some lake, as you can probably guess. It was more of an illusion to deter outsiders from finding their village. Once somebody welcomed into the village passed under the water, it was like they were descending into a normal valley. There, Vivian lived among this special, magical people, and that's where she heard the wailing of Queen Elaine early one autumn morning. Her eyes popping above the illusory water, she saw King Ban fall from his horse. She saw smoke in the sky, and the squire and queen rush after the king. Then, she saw a little baby Galahad. He was beautiful, and she took pity on him. By the fact that they were in rough traveling clothes, appearing to be merchants and not the king and queen, Vivian rightfully deduced that they were on the run, by the mere fact that the king was now dead and the queen beside herself with grief, well, that meant that they might be caught and this poor thing might be killed. In an instant, Vivian knew what she must do. She scooped up the baby and took him into the water. As to why she didn't tell the mother and left Elaine in anxiety for the rest of her days, well, I'm not exactly sure. She never learned he was baptized as Galahad, so she renamed him. And from that day forward, he would be known as Lancelot of the Lake. Except, he didn't know he was Lancelot of the Lake. She never told him his name. As an aside, it's thought that Lancelot means servant, and that the name was initially made up by a different writer. So I can't really shoehorn it into the narrative of the Lady of the Lake. Even though he didn't go by Lancelot at this time, we're just going to call him Lancelot for simplicity's sake. And yeah, this is another Lady of the Lake. They pop up from time to time in Arthurian legend. This is not the same Lady of the Lake that was beheaded. This is a different one. Lancelot lived in their little village under the lake, and remember, it's not in any way aquatic. The lake is just an elaborate illusion, though I think people feel water when they touch it. Lancelot grew up quickly and was basically the greatest and best at everything. He was tall, but not too tall. Muscular, but not a meathead. His eyes were piercing, his jaw chiseled, and his abs washboardy. I don't think that's actually a word. But yes, the Lancelot of the French Vulgate the obviously central character of the Lancelot Grail Cycle, was handsome, smart, skilled at all manner of competition and weapons, and charming to boot. 
The French Vulgate has about 90 pages devoted to a civil war where Claudius hunted for Lancelot and his cousins, the rightful heirs to the throne of Ban and Bors. It led to greyhounds being confused for boys, boys being confused for greyhounds, dinner parties being interrupted by murder, and about a decade and a half of civil war as people and lords rose up on behalf of Lancelot and his cousins. We are skipping through all of that though. It's marginally interesting, but it has virtually no bearing on the larger Arthurian legends. We're going to fast forward to where Lancelot is 18. Vivian knew she couldn't keep him there, cloistered in safety in the magical village. He was a man now. To hold such a magnificent warrior back from gaining renown was tantamount to sin. And so one day, she found him caring for his equipment after a hunt. She explained to him, in exhaustive detail, everything it took to be an honorable knight. And he must be an honorable one. It would mean giving your life, day in and day out, to protect the people, and them spending their lives to provide for you. It meant having two hearts, one of iron, a heart of stone toward the wicked and unjust, and a soft heart toward the innocent and the weak. He must never confuse the two. Most of all, it meant having a pure heart and swearing to hold yourself to a near impossible standard of conduct. Swearing such before God and the people. Lancelot thought about it for a moment, and though he had just learned of this thing called knighthood about 20 minutes ago, said that it would be his life's goal, and he wanted nothing more. All joking aside, I really do like the character of Lancelot. Sure, he's bordering on a Mary Sue at this point, and there's a link explaining what that means in the show notes, but you have that with medieval texts. You have to remember, too, that he hasn't been tested yet. It's easy to be the biggest fish in a small pond, or magical lake, as in Lancelot's case, and it's easy to be honorable when your ideals and moral strength have never been challenged. He's a young man who is kind, charitable, and always seeking to improve himself in everything he does. Sure, he's borderline perfect now, as you'll see, he doesn't stay that way, and the height at which he begins will make his fall all the more painful and tragic when it finally happens. Vivian was happy her Lancelot would live up to his potential, but she met the news with a broken heart. Not only would he be leaving, but he would be going to Britain to join the court of the best king in the land, the magnificent King Arthur. Vivian would take him, though it wasn't without some trepidation. Nearly 20 years on, Merlin may have forgotten how she left him without an explanation. Maybe, but the rumors she heard of him about leaving armies and massacring a ship of infants. At first, she was worried about running into him, but then she had an idea. Vivian rode with Lancelot and a few others. It was an easy trip across the channel and a peaceful ride north to Camelot. She began to mourn more and more for the young man she had come to regard as her son. Now, he will be leaving her. They heard the noise of hounds up ahead. The time had come. They emerged from the trees and Lancelot was struck by the splendor of it all. Up ahead, at the end of a winding, snaking road, was Camelot. The white towers and walls filled the horizon. Atop the hill in the center was the highest tower, the castle of King Arthur. It was so large that it nearly completely dwarfed the most powerful man in Britain, out with his household and hounds, on a hunt. 
They were taking a break, and the whole group stopped and stared when they saw the party emerge from the forest. Groups traveling to Camelot weren't really surprising. A lady of the lake, though, hadn't been seen for years since the last one was beheaded in Camelot, and so Arthur took notice. The king himself, Arthur, was now in his mid-thirties, and he approached the party with his seneschal, his brother Kay. Arthur greeted the Lady of the Lake, Vivian, who took the king aside privately, and Lancelot and the others talked with the knights, squires, pages, and servants who made up Arthur's hunting party. Arthur was dismayed that Vivian, the Lady of the Lake, would not be staying. I imagine he still harbored guilt after Balin, a knight that died a long time ago at this point, killed one of her own, a Lady of the Lake. Vivian said that just because she happened to live in a lake didn't mean that they were related, but you know what? Vivian said she did have a request. She looked around and saw that Lancelot was out of earshot. The young man with her, she said. He wanted to become a knight. She had raised him and trained him. He was ready. She knew it generally took years, but Vivian wanted Arthur to pledge to make the young man a knight as soon as he asked. Arthur paused. It was unorthodox, but he knew the power of strange women lying in ponds, and if she said he was good enough, then he was good enough. Nearly 20 years on, Arthur still wanted to make it right with the Lady of the Lake, even though they were basically unrelated. Besides, this young man looked strong and smart. He would make a fine knight. Arthur agreed. Nearly an hour later, the Lady of the Lake, Vivian, was provisioned and ready to set out on her own, back to Brittany. She just had to see Lancelot before she left, to give some words of advice and one final gift. She told him not to tell anyone his name, he said that this was easy. She had never told him his name. He had always been called the handsome foundling or the rich orphan in their village. She smiled and stroked his hair. She told him that he would find out soon enough, but he wasn't just some foundling. He was the son of a king and queen, and he would learn all about who he was. Anyway, most importantly, he must ask the king to make him a knight tomorrow and stay only one night in Camelot before leaving. She told Lancelot to not stay in one place longer than he had to, but to keep moving, to keep seeking renown and glory. It could have been that the Lady of the Lake truly wanted him to just gain renown, but my personal interpretation is that she was worried about Merlin. She was worried that the old wizard would learn of Lancelot and the Lady of the Lake and take his revenge on the boy she considered to be her son. That's why he must stay moving. He agreed and accepted one last gift from the only mother he had ever known. A ring. Like many rings in medieval literature, it, of course, was magic. It revealed when something had been enchanted, and it nullified it. Vivian looked around. It was already late afternoon. If she rode as fast as she could, she could possibly make it to port by evening. She took Lancelot's hand in hers and told the boy that she thought of as a son that she was proud of the man he had become. With that, she turned and left. Lancelot watched her go before walking back to Arthur's people, his people now. One knight emerged from the crowd with blonde hair. He wore a wide grin and had an easygoing manner about him. He said his name was Yvain, and he would be directing Lancelot's training. Vivian was on the road, riding as fast as she could for port. She didn't know what it was, but she had a terrible, panicked feeling. She had to get off the island. This was his land, 
and she had gone into exile 20 years ago because of his advances. Though they had both grown in power since she left, she knew that there had to be things that he withheld from her in her training. Then, the hairs on the back of her neck stood up as she approached a blind turn. Her whole being screamed against turning the corner, but it was too late. She did, and a lone rider sat in the middle of the road. Her horse skidded to a stop. It was the young nobleman, or what would have been the young nobleman 20 years on. You made a promise to me, the nobleman said from atop his horse, his eyes not wavering from her. All these years gone, you're still lying, Vivian said. Stop it, Merlin. In an instant, the man before her transformed from the still dashing nobleman in his late 30s to the wrinkled and worn wizard in his early 60s. I made that promise to a handsome young nobleman, not some middle-aged wizard, she said. Then, most surprisingly, she watched Merlin's shoulders slump. He said that he understood. He was sorry. He told her that he still loved her, even after all these years, and he began riding away. Vivian was surprised that that was it. After all the years of hiding, all the years of fear, all the years of checking shadowed corners and watching who she got close to, that was all that the powerful Merlin did to her when she confronted him about the past? Wait, she told him. Stop. Let's talk. He perked up a bit and turned around. They rode together for three hours. She learned of his role in King Arthur's court, of the children on the Mayday Massacre, of the terrible choice, and of all that he had done for Arthur and Arthur's ancestors. It was obvious to her that he was weary. She guessed that he wanted to be finished with all this. The intrigue, the battles, the deception, the death. She was surprised to learn that he knew where she was the whole time, but he never came after her. Before they parted, she paused. She told him that she did love him once. Maybe she could love him again, but as Merlin, as himself, not some fake handsome nobleman. She had a proposition for him. As he apparently knew, she had been living in Brittany in modern day France. If he wanted to leave all of this behind, then he should meet her one year from today on the edge of the Brocéliande forest near her lake. If he did, they would disappear together and live out the rest of their days far from the troubles and chaos of the British Isles. In the meantime, he could prepare Arthur or whoever to live without him. If he wanted to live the rest of his days free from all of this, to run away with her, then he need only to meet her in a year. If he's not there by sunset, then he'll never see her again. If he is, then they can see what might have been all those years ago. Vivian didn't wait for his answer, but spurred on her horse. Without looking back, she rode for the sea, back home to Brittany. Next week, we'll follow Lancelot on his ridiculously short journey to knighthood. Arthur will get moderately drunk and lose his wife, but not like that. And we'll pick back up with the unfolding story of Merlin and Vivian. I want to say thanks to Tom Fagan, Ripples105, Pink Primate, Hello Baby, The Chameleon, Macy Mace, The Plus Game Master, Seabob123456789, J-Man Rocks MC, CRA Rubbish, 
another Emma Green, Euclid123456, seven, a lot of numbers in this one, and Jimmy Shadow for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's great to see your feedback and everything. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is very much the best place. And you can find the show on iTunes or the podcasts app at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of an iPhone cover with a picture of an ingrown toenail on it. Yeah, that exists for some reason. You can get extra episodes, a weekly ad-free version of this podcast, and source pack ebooks that won't make people vomit when you pass them playing Pokemon Go. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information. The creature this week is the Gumbaroo. It's a fearsome critter from the Pacific Northwest in the United States. It's a large, bear-like creature that harasses lumberjacks and eats their horses. It's said to be almost indistinguishable from a bear, except for the fact that it's nearly hairless. It only has hairy eyebrows and a fairly lengthy neck beard. The rest of it is pitch black. Okay, I just have to say, if you've listened to the pig-faced lady episode and seen the pictures of the shaved bears I posted, I'll repost them on the discussion post, then you know that a shaved bear is a terrifying and ugly thing and looks almost nothing like a hairy bear. The gumbaroo, though, doesn't appear to look exactly like bears because while bears have saggy skin, the gumbaroo must go to the spa because his skin is drum tight. It's so tight that it, of course, is bouncy. Anything hurled against the skin bounces back with equal force. If it meets a charging elk, the elk gets bounced back into the trees. The skin is so tight that it is bulletproof, so do not try to shoot the thing, because the bullets will bounce back with equal force and hit the shooter between the eyes. It's mostly harmless, unless you're a horse, and then it's very harmful. The Gumbaroo wanders from their homes once in a while to eat anything they see. That doesn't put up too much of a fight, no matter how awkwardly shaped. It eats it whole and alive. They're kind of like the little bomber guys from Mario, which though I've called them bomb-oms my whole life, I've been told are bomb-oms because this creature, while you can bounce off of them, has one weakness. They blow up. If they get caught in a forest fire or any fire, they go up instantly. They explode with so much force that it can be heard from miles around, leaving only the lingering, terrible smell of burnt rubber. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Again, let me recommend a really good podcast I heard called Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. With the help of an ensemble cast of voice actors, follow hosts Vanessa and Carter as they take you on an entertaining journey through real lives and tragic deaths of people who changed history. You know who they were and how they died. Or do you? Listen now in your favorite podcast directory or by visiting parcast.com slash lives. That's spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash lives. Once again, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>